Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Sustainable E-Commerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand for a healthier planet. As always, I'm your host, Giles Smith, and I thought I'd start with something a little bit different today. So here's a little riddle. What am I? I'm used by every single physical product brand in every vertical. I'm essential to your business. I'm essential to your customer experience, yet I'm almost completely out of your control. I am one of the largest parts of your cost base and one of the largest parts of your carbon footprint. What am I? Did you figure it out? Of course, I'm talking about logistics, specifically order delivery. It's something that most brands take for granted and like I alluded to, simply go with the easiest or cheapest option. Of course, these days, good old Australia Post has made giant strides to reduce their carbon footprint. But the provider that challenged them to do that in the first place, and to this day, is still leading the way in terms of sustainability innovation, with their drive towards net zero emissions and support for circularity, is of course Sendle. So today I'm chatting with James Chin Moody, the founder and CEO at Sendle, about their journey from a humble gifting company to a global logistics provider. We chat about the complexities of net zero logistics, about challenging state-run monopolies, and about how Sendle's operational DNA is quite different to other logistics providers, putting them in the driver's seat to empower the circular economy. So with that, let's start the show. James Chin Moody, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Giles. Oh, do you know what? It is uh, truly humbling to have you here today, James. I mean, one of the absolute legends in the sustainability startup space in Australia's absolute success story, fighting against, well, what can only be con- considered to be a sort of state-backed monopoly in the logistics space. Um, first one in Australia to come out with uh, carbon neutral shipping options for for small brands. So what a legend that you've become in just eight short years or eight long years, as it might seem, I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have you here, James. And I, I am I'm beside myself with all the things that I'd like to ask you about on the show today. We've covered off a couple of them on the quick conversation we just had. But before we get into any of that good stuff, James, please do tell us a little bit about yourself, your founder story, and why on earth you decided to start up a logistics company. Yeah, well, I'm. I'll look, you're too, you're too kind, Giles. I think um, my background. I'm. I'm. I'm a satellite engineer, believe it or not. And oh, right. okay. uh, started my career. Um, yeah, building. I was as part of Australia's first satellite in 30 years. But one of the things that happens a lot for folk in the space industry is you you eventually put your eyes back to Earth, and you start to realize that we are all on one spaceship together, and it has a closed ecosystem. And so I started getting very heavily involved in the environmental movement. Um, did a lot of work with the United Nations Environment Program. I, I used to chair the UNEP Youth Council. And that was my real entry into the, the world of sustainability to the point where I then joined CSIRO uh, with their land and water division, taking, uh, you know, partly taking satellite data and turning it into environmental intelligence. So I really joined those two worlds together. Wow. Um, fast forward a few, about seven years later, and um, I ended up looking after business development for all of CSIRO, uh, as well as the future which was really fun. And, uh, and again, uh, did a PhD in innovation theory, looking at uh, te- the ways of innovation. And and uh, I know we're, 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 we're talking about sustainability. One of the, the book that I wrote was all about how effectively resource efficiency and decoupling economic growth from resource consumption would be the next wave of innovation. So, so that was my background. 
Um, how did that lead to founding a, a, a logistics company was um, what my wife uh, actually had. We had our second uh, child and I signed up to be the primary carer for five years so she could follow her career and I needed something to do. And I decided that I really wanted to go and build again. And so we didn't we didn't start off as a logistics. We actually started off as a, as a giving marketplace where people give things away. Right. But it just so happened uh, that the use case for that, uh, the biggest point of friction for giving things away was getting items from one person to another. And that mm. was the thing that got us into logistics. And, and it really was, in, in hindsight, like the worst possible use case for logistics, right? It like had to be very, very cheap, had to be door-to-door, was only ever one thing at a time. And it had to be built for folk who who really, you know, were time poor because if you made it, you know, uh, if you made it complicated or hard, then they just wouldn't do it. Yeah. And so we got this very interesting use case for logistics. And the only way we could solve it and, you know, bless them, I, I worked for a national, you know, uh, uh, icon. Uh, we talked to Australia Post. We talked to a lot of folks. But um, really, they they wanted us to line up and they weren't cheap. Um, all, the cha- all the challenges that many small businesses have. Mm. Uh, but what we found was that there is this whole set of logistics infrastructure in Australia, this big enterprise level, often inf- logistics infrastructure that's delivering lots of things to people's homes, mm. but the trucks often go back empty. Mm. And so we thought, well, if we could open up that infrastructure, if we could fill those trucks, um, then not only would we get the cost down, but we'd also be able to get a door-to-door delivery service that was uh, could, could even, again, start with minimums of one. Yeah. And so we did that um, and fast forward to 2014 and it turns out that that was a service that not just us, but every other marketplace and indeed every other small business could really use to help them sell, help businesses thrive, saving money uh, and uh, being door to door. Well, I feel like my brain's just liquefied, to be honest. Uh, I didn't realize oh, I was li- literally talking to a rocket scientist uh, as we came into this show. I probably should have done more research. Um, anyway, amazing. What an incredible journey. And and. That sets us up nicely to talk about some really important challenges, I think, for uh, sustainable logistics, particularly around circularity, um, perhaps slightly later in, in the chat today. Before we do, I, I'm so fascinated with the story of doing that. I mean, obviously, you started out there as a sort of gifting service and and the inherent challenges that I can now see quite clearly led to the model that you have at Sendle. I mean, now it makes sense. I, I, now that you've explained that, I think it's brilliant. But I can't dismiss the huge challenge that you had with deciding to start up a logistics company in the face of, you know, the Australia Post monopoly. Now, Australia Post is doing lots of great things. I'm not I'm not out to bag those guys. They're doing a lot of incredible things. But nevertheless, what a challenge that was. Can you can you give us some insights on in what that's been like over the last eight years and some of the things, some of the challenges that's actually meant for you as a, a growing brand that's doing really well? Uh, but has, I don't know, a millionth of the percent of the infrastructure that Australia Post has. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I think um, you mentioned, you know, we we do have a functional monopoly in place, particularly when you focus on small-scale logistics in Australia, um, which was, you know, Australia Post. And, and a monopoly that's wrapped in a habit mm. is pretty much invisible. And so, uh, but what we realised was that the fact that there is a monopoly is generally doing a couple of things. One, it's really hurting uh, small business from a price perspective. 
you know, one of the things that does happen as you start to bring diversity in, of course, it drives prices down. Mm. Uh, and I think the second thing is that um, we realized, yeah, there was a whole lot of things. And I'm going back to 2014 when we started, um, for example, taking responsibility for carbon emissions, all these things that just weren't happening that we thought was should be part and parcel of, of a logistics journey, or in fact, what it means to take responsibility for the parcel um, mm. as, it, as it travels. So, uh, yes, I, I mean, I very much believe we, we were Australia's first technology B Corp as well. Mm. Yeah. And for us, that means about line, aligning uh, our purpose, why the business should exist with our business model. And our purpose is really built around two things. One, uh, you know, leveling the playing field between big and small. There is so much cross-subsidy that happens within the logistics world where you actually have small businesses cross-subsidizing really large businesses. Whereas by just focusing on small, we open that all up. Right. And the second one was to help accelerate the transition to to carbon neutral shipping and, and net zero shipping now. Um, but that's really why we started. And and those two things became effectively the the you know the golden thread throughout our entire journey. So it wasn't really about taking on Australia Post, or indeed now we're you know we're in um, taking on UPS in America. We're taking yeah. on Canada Post in Canada. Um, it was much more about how do we level the playing field for small business which means, you know, breaking monopolies. And secondly, how do we transition that, that you know, the, the move to, 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 to net zero? Yeah. And you mentioned pricing there, which is obviously a thing. Given that every single e-commerce company, by definition, has logistics to face, they've got to deliver whatever the customer's bought to the customer. This is a thing that is, is a consistent for everybody. And one thing that's interesting is that of all the factors at checkout for a, con- for a consumer – the single biggest factor that determines whether they they will abandon their checkout is the cost of shipping at the end of the day. And so ultimately what that means is from a from a supply point of view, you know what you guys do, cost is a real thing from a, from a brand point yep. of view. It's it's a definite and, and as they scale out that gets that gets more and more important. You mentioned that um that uh, competition brings down price and 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 that's certainly normally true in in marketplaces, but it's an interesting time that we live in now. We're recording this right at the end of June. In a week or so's time, Australia Post is about to hike their prices again, and yet you guys are coming out with uh, quite competitive pricing structures, let's just say, from mid-July to once again change the game. So I don't really want to focus on price too much because I want to get all the exciting stuff and the sciencey stuff going uh, more, but can you just talk to us a little bit about what that means? Because fundamentally, this is a really important time uh, for e-commerce. This is make or break time. We're in a difficult economy. Um, all yep. brands are looking to to do things more um, more cost effectively, and so this is just a great opportunity to to talk about what you're doing with Sandal. Oh, I, th- I think I mean some some research that was done by Shopify. I think found that uh, you know uh, up to up to sixty percent of cart abandonment is up on the shipping page. Yeah, right. The cost of shipping is one of the things that really drives folk away. Imagine if you could remove that and suddenly increase your sales by you know sixty percent. Like mm. what a what a dream. And and so um, yeah, we uh, one of the things about our model is the bigger we get. The more we can can bring prices down, uh, we you know it really is about uh, finding uh, efficiencies uh, in the alternative network to Australia Post, and that's mm. that's amazing. Um, so yeah, on the same day that Australia Post announced a ten percent price rise, we actually announced a savings program, and we're really excited about this one um, because it really is about leveraging the scale of small businesses all together uh, to to basically get. You know, in a in a world of inflation, we want to be the ones that are actually t- trying to take some some relief for those yeah. small businesses. Amazing. It's very exciting, uh, your announcement. What does, can you share with us the, the the practical details of that so people know what to expect? Given that, but well, actually, I should probably say, by the time this episode goes live, this will already be common information. <laughs> so just feel free to share it. 
Yeah, look, uh, look, it's you know, ship and save. You can what it's really trying to do is, uh, uh, you know, on one level, it's very simple. The more you ship, the more you save. Yeah. Uh, but it is, and but at the same time, we're also looking very, very deeply at, um, you know, effectively what you're using for your shipping, and if you can change things around uh, how you're shipping, we can uh, we can basically reduce the cost for you. Yeah. So, and when we get start talking about, you know, how do you improve efficiency? One of the cool things is efficiency of shipping is very much linked to the price of shipping. You know, they, I mean, probably probably fairly obvious, but, you know, yeah. so the more you ship, the more you save. And it's really about translating those savings across to our customers, yeah. making it very transparent. So you started out by talking about that, you know, you, you were built from the ground up with sort of, you know, person-to-person type type logistics in mind. And and I think that's, to a degree, something that's stayed with Sendle all the way along, I think, at least in principle, I might be wrong about it, but I think it has. For anybody that hasn't sort of looked under the covers of, of why you guys are different to, say, Australia Post, can you just talk to us very quickly about structurally how, you, how you're different and why you're able to do what you can do? Yeah, so what we do is um, effectively we're taking, again, networks. Some of them are reserved only for very, very large businesses and open those networks up, and we stitch them together. Um, so, for example, if I wanted to send a parcel from um, Sydney at the moment, if I wanted to send it to North Dakota, uh, we might have one provider who will pick it up. Another one will actually ship it to the US and another one, uh, a local provider in, in the US will do it. But it's all Stendhal. It's all our brand. Uh, it's all our customer support and it's all our promise and our price. Yeah. Um, what that really does though, is it means that we can you know, get some of those enterprise rates and make them available to small businesses who otherwise wouldn't get access to it. Mm. Again, you can, you can line up at the post office uh, and send 10 kilograms from Sydney to Perth and it'll cost you say $45. We're doing it for around half that. Yeah. And there's no way that Amazon is paying that amount of money to send a parcel from Sydney to Perth. So, so really it is about uh, um, access. It's all about access to infrastructure. And as part of that access, uh, what we're really doing is, you know, trying, um, and, and it's interesting, uh, particularly over COVID, uh, you know, for example, we were the only carrier that didn't stop picking up. Uh, mm. throughout COVID. Every other carrier had moments when they couldn't pick up because of cases or whatever, because we have a network that's extremely extensible, extremely flexible. Uh, and as you mentioned, always starts with a minimum of one. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we've done from day one is said, you don't have to, again, if you're a startup and you're sending one package a day, totally fine. No contracts, no minimums, no promises. You know, that's that for us is about leveling the playing field. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, immediately there are a couple of questions I have off the back of that. And, but the obvious one, which I think, you know, many people that have used Sendle may have experienced this or maybe they won't. Um, but obviously you don't own all those logistics. You're, you're, you're simply partnering with, you know, a great network of people. And, and I think those, those transition points are where the, the fragility in the network is. And I, I've heard from customers that quite often parcels that with Sendle get sort of stuck at those transition points. Um, what what are your thoughts on that, and, and how is how is Sendle kind of leveraging the technology to kind of smooth that away? Yeah, I think um, look at in the world of logistics, it's very different when you're dealing with atoms rather than dealing with bits, and things will yeah. always, well, not always, sometimes happen. Um, there's about 52 different ways in which a parcel can, uh, you know, uh, can can go awry. Um, I think the the way we look at it is one, you know, the bigger we get, uh, the more we smooth that as you say, yeah. um, we do focus, our network is built on quality rather than cost, which is really, really important. Um, and we run a 97% on-time delivery performance. So that's our, that's our current delivery performance. And uh, we have an MPS um, over 50. So, you know, you will get one-off 
issues for sure. Um, and our, our, the, from, a, from a business perspective, it's about saying, well, if that happens, how can we learn from it? How do we take responsibility? You know, how do we how do we make sure that we're trying to do right? Uh, we have mm. what we call our, our promise. And that promise is all about saying, well, this is what we can do. You know, if the parcel is not picked up on time, we have a pickup guarantee and, and so yeah. on. So, but yeah, uh, I, I'm also the first to say, hey, um, the world of logistics is hard as I've learned as a satellite engineer. And for those, if if we have had, you know, and, and again, the network's getting better, but in, in the past, sometimes if there are places where we haven't uh, been able to deliver on time or whatever it might be, then yeah, we, we fully apologize and um, put our hand up and say, well, you know, we, we always aim to do better. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Things are always going to go right every now and again. But I will say that in talking to people last Christmas or last couple of Christmases, uh, comparing Sendal services to Australia Post services, the ability to get things into the hands of customers in that timely manner that's all important for the big event on Christmas Day is a lot more reliable to do it with Sendal than with Australia Post, funnily enough. So oh, that's nice. I think that's some great feedback in, in, in support of what you guys are doing. But I want to move on and start talking about some of the future-facing stuff. And I want to start with circularity, if I can, please, James, mm. because I think this is one of the biggest challenges that we have in the world of direct-to-consumer products is the ability to engineer circular economies. And circular economies ultimately mean getting stuff back to the origination point, right? And the reverse logistics is really hard, especially in places like Australia. What are your thoughts on on the way that's all going to go, especially here in Australia, but maybe globally. And and what is Sendal doing to to assist in that process? Yeah, I, th- I think um, I mean you're absolutely right. Like I I, I like to joke. Um, every single circular economy diagram has two things in common. Uh, number one is it got circles, surprise, yep. surprise. But the second thing, it's got arrows, right? And those arrows are actually logist- logistics. Um, generally, one of the things you know, the circular economy is about saying that waste is can be a form of unsellable production right that you can actually uh you have produced something but you haven't sold it and generally that's because it's worthless where it is but if you can move it somewhere else where it has value it's that movement that actually creates value so from a logistics perspective we see it as yeah it's the movement of items is the thing that creates value in the circular economy and therefore makes it available Mm. now in order to do that the movement of that item becomes really interesting because generally, you know, in a circular economy sense, things often are, are centralized for production. In other words, a big factory that's doing it and then decentralized for, you know, in, in terms of distribution. So yeah, what do you need for us for a circular economy carrier? Uh, we think of it as from anyone to anyone with a minimum of one. So from anyone from to anyone with a minimum of one, that's what a circular economy logistics company has to build. And that's actually back to our purpose you think about it, that's why we actually have a very firm line that we actually do start with a minimum of one yeah. for every single delivery. Because, yeah, I, I, again, you know, it's a bit nerdy, but that's what we're trying to build. We're trying to build a network that is from anyone to anyone with a minimum of one. And when you do that, that's when we start opening up some interesting opportunities in reverse logistics. Um, uh, as you say, reverse logistics and returns are very, very similar. Uh, yeah. It's about trying to make sure, but again, can you do it? Um, uh, the, the big difference around... Some of the reverse logistics is happily you can relax things around time for delivery, right? Like all those things. So how do you get all those efficiencies and make them part of the system in order to make mm. the economics work? 
Yeah. And because, I mean, you know, in talking to a lot of people that are trying to work with the circular economy here in Australia, Australia Post really is an inefficient way of handling the reverse part because of the hub and spoke model and, and all the rest of it makes it very, very difficult. But of course, you've got more of a sort of a, more of a mesh, I suppose, more of a network where you don't have that having to return to a certain point and then move it on, then move it on. You can go essentially point to point. Is that fair? Or or how would you how would you see that working? Uh, I think we take the uh, take the view that um, again, when you're uh, if you're delivering stuff to and and again, America is much more advanced than Australia. But yeah. in some of this, um, e-commerce is sort of twice the penetration. But this is where Australia is going to go. But if you're delivering stuff to a house even once a week, you know how do you then open that back up? Yeah. In order to to make sure that the pipe goes the other way, and you know again, if you're if all of your infrastructure is to try to get people to line up, well, you're not going to do that. Whereas ours is not. Ours is absolutely around a distributed, you know, delivery network, and therefore uh, it can be a distributed collection network as well. Yeah. So, are you are you seeing that Sendle is an effective solution for circular economy now, or what are you working on to make it better and support that whole development of the of the industry as we go forward? Yeah, I think one of the things we've been doing, and we we have got, um, you know, we've been collecting mobile phones, and we've done, uh, you know, coffee pod collections, and a whole lot of things like that around the circular economy. I think the I think the, you know, for us, the big thing is getting the economics right, right? And that comes with density and that comes with scale. Yeah. So I do really believe that's the that's the secret. Um, yeah. You know, how do we get to that point? And, and density, very hard to achieve in Australia, right? Yeah, well, it, it depends where. I mean, where it's it's funny, like 80% of us are in one of the most highly urbanized countries in the world, mm. funnily enough, uh, because we all sit on, you know, on a coast. Yeah. Uh, and then the rest of us uh, are, are, you know, very sparsely, you know, uh, populated so, yeah. so you know a very low density so so it's a really interesting challenge I, I guess of getting that mix right yeah do you see your explorations to continuously innovate in that being based here in your in your home 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 country of australia or do you see it where there is greater population density say in the u.s uh generally you know um as a you know as a business everything you know australia is where we're much more uh, uh mature yeah. Um, and, you know, it's where we've actually launched a, a you know, a two-day express service where we've got a, where we launched returns first. So yeah, generally things come out of Australia to begin with. Um, but we, you know, we launched in the US in 2019 and we launched in Canada in 2022. We've now, we've now actually sent a parcel from every single three-digit zip in America to every three-digit zip in America to wow. give you a sense of the scale. Um, and, you know, so again, we learn stuff there as well that we can bring back to Australia. Yeah, amazing. So you started out back in 2014 with, you know, carbon neutral delivery. Then you became climate neutral. I know you've got plans to get towards uh, net zero by 2030. I'm, I'm so fascinated by this because I would think that the vast majority of the realistic footprint that you have is in operations, which you don't own because you have a partner network, what does that look like? What does the plan actually look like to get to net zero for you? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, what is ownership as well, right? Like, because most of the courier, you know, many courier companies don't actually own the trucks. They own right. by the franchisees or the contractors that they use or whatever it might be. So so we look at it very much. It's more about who, where, where does the responsibility lie? And yeah, from day one, every single parcel, we've actually taken full responsibility for, for the um, for the carbon emissions of the delivery. In fact, in the early days, um, just to make sure that we were... You know, we didn't have as much sophistication as we have now. We'd basically um, imagine that every parcel was going from city to Perth, and we'd offset that, right? Like just because we knew that that was a, you know, making uh, one of the things I'm very aware of coming from the environment movement is 
you know, this stuff is extremely important to, to make sure that you can back up every single claim that you make. Right, right. So, um, so yeah, so from the early day, from day one, it's been about saying, well, it's not, doesn't matter who owns it, right? Who owns the truck? Actually, how much car, you know, how much is it actually, what did the emission uh, cost, you might say, of, mm. of moving that parcel, you know, from point A to point B? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, when we look, when we think about, you know, moving to net zero, um, it really does come down to, well, how much le- uh, how much um, influence can you have around the procurement of that? Mm. And we're already starting to see that. You know, there's everything from what can we do to improve the efficiency? Uh, you know, these are starting to get into some interesting products that I'll, again, I don't want my, my, my team will get me in trouble, but, you know, just imagine any way in which you could find ways of joining parcels together in any part of the journey. I mean, all that, what does that do? It actually removes, reduces the carbon intensity of the journey per parcel, right? right? It'll reduce the carbon intensity and reduce the cost. Uh, moving modes of transportation from air to road uh, or from road to rail, like all these different ways I uh, can do that. And then finally, um, I think the biggest challenge and, and opportunity at the same time facing the, uh, the the world of logistics is electrification. Mm. And, you know, what can we do to actually accelerate that? And we're already started to do that in Australia, um, you know, with electric vehicle pickups and um, and, and more importantly, uh, a lot of the lot of the big challenges, not just the vehicle, it's actually the the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure that you need, right, uh, to be able to charge the vehicles at the same time as uh, offloading or unloading uh, the parcels. So, right. you know, all that comes together. You know, uh, improving uh, the the efficiency of the journey to reduce the carbon intensity. Adding, you know, what can we do to to incentivize folk the right way? Uh, what can you do to 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 accelerate the transition to electrification, right? And then. Once you've done every single thing you can, well, then you can look at what might be possible. But there's so much you can do before that. Amazing! You, you, you've got a full stack of plans there, which is which is pretty cool. That, uh, that, that's impressive, and it's interesting what you said about the electric, uh, the electrification part. I mean, other countries seem to be way ahead of us here, not just in their infrastructure because we're so far behind in, in the EV infrastructure here, but also in the development and usage of of EV delivery vehicles, which is still pretty unusual here in Australia mm. compared to some other parts of the world. I, I recently returned from um, from Norway. Um, see my wife's parents and and they're almost 60 percent of vehicles on the road are evs and there's charging points everywhere you look so you know we that's kind of what we've got to go for but i just wonder do you see a world in the future and this is just pure speculation whether whether hydrogen vehicles will overtake evs and certainly in the delivery space look it's really hard um you know if, if we think about you know i think so it's really comes down to the economics and the speed mm. um so one of the advantages you have if you are in delivery if the battery Again, it really comes down to also battery. You know, I saw Toyota recently released a, an EV with 600 kilometers. You know, at a certain point there, you you sort of go, well, it's just about the economics of that battery, the container, uh, versus where the energy is going to come from. Because at that point, you can say, well, I'm just going to, you know, most most uh, couriers do two runs a day. Yeah, a morning run and an afternoon run. Yeah, if you can charge while between those two while you're having lunch and also doing parcel exchange. And as long as you're traveling less than 400 kilometers per run, batteries is totally yeah. batteries are totally fine. Then it just comes down to what's the economics of the battery and what's the economics of the, the carbon uh, the, the sorry the energy storage mechanism. Mm. And I would imagine most uh, certainly urban deliveries are well less than 400 k's anyway, aren't they? In the day, so you know you just got to return to base and somehow find enough charging points for the vehicles overnight. Yep. And and this is where it also gets really interesting. If you think of a lot of these uh, large depots, they actually have a second um, set of uh, infrastructure that they that they own, which is the roof of the building. 
It's yeah. not just the building, it's the roof of the building. And so you start saying, well, what is the opportunity there? You know, there's a huge amount of footprint. So, so again, you start thinking about, okay, what does that whole system look like? Can you improve the efficiency? So yeah. it's not really a question of hydrogen versus electrification. It, I think it is much more, yeah, coming down to that core infrastructure, what's going to make sense yeah. uh, and, and what's going to be useful for this particular use case. Yeah, 100%. You touched on something a, a while back before I jumped in with some random thing about hydrogen vehicles. I don't know why I did that, but I thought it was fun at the time. Um, you mentioned this, you know, the notion of being uh, of being traceable with all of your all of your carbon offsets and all the rest of it. And I think this, if we if we sort of fast forward that word to transparency, that's that's becoming a big trend uh for brands and and a big trend for in consumers expecting brands to be really clear about what they're doing and one of the things that i've been talking about uh, to the brands that i coach is very much to talk about shipping and and why your your shipping uh, is carbon neutral why it's plastic free what whatever it might be because consumers really want to know that stuff if we fast forward that conversation i think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning around transparency over the next few years to come obviously regulators getting hotter and hotter on it and it would be wonderful to be in a world where uh, brands could say your delivery has it ha- has turned up here it is and we've offset you know 1.2 kilos of, of, of carbon for you based on the tr- on the on the journey from here to here uh, so you know it's been a carbon neutral delivery do you see that as being something that you might be able to facilitate in the future are you working on that now or how do you th- how do you see Sendel's role in in sp- supporting transparency for brands yeah i think it's a really good one i mean we um uh we do find that a lot of brands actually you know uh take what we're doing <laughs> And make it part of their story, which is fantastic because that is that is really what we want to do. If you, you know, one of the things we think about shipping, it's not about just reducing costs. It's actually about helping e-commerce companies sell more, right? We talked about you know checkout conversion before. Well, if that can do it, if you can build loyalty by using carbon neutral shipping or you know net zero shipping and so on. So uh, we do have lots of resources on our website that is about supporting that. One of the challenges there, though, is talking about kilograms of mm. CO2 is in, in some ways there's, we, we find that hard because actually the idea is to re- not just offset, it's actually reduce it over time. Right, um, exactly. my, my, my preferred measure is actually kilometers of net zero uh, carbon neutral delivery. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I'll give you a sense. You know, Sendle as a whole, we've sent, uh, let me just have a check. 47 billion kilometers of carbon neutral parcel delivery. Uh, and so that's what that's what we're up to right now. So that's, uh, if you think about it, that's well beyond Voyager. Now, a lot of companies are doing the same thing. If you start to think about that and the, the scale of that, mm. you know, driving a truck's 47 billion kilometers uh, and doing it while saying we're, gonna, we're not going to have any, uh, you know, net carbon emission as part of that, that's when you can say, I, I think you get more chance to to capture hearts and minds. And, and mm. at the same time, you're not, uh, you know, you're basically saying, yes, the, the the incentives all line up when we start talking about, you know, not just carbon offsetting, but, you know, we're, we're really trying to, to uh, reduce the carbon intensity of yeah. the network. I mean, that makes an enormous amount of sense from a, from a send-all and a brand story point of view. I think what I was getting at was more proof, I suppose, right? Because mm. it's very easy to say, oh, we've just delivered your, um, your parcel carbon neutral, but there's so much BS thrown yes. around out there so much greenwashing going on and without the ability to put some sort of measurement on things it's very hard to prove that that's in fact what you've done and that's really what i was getting at around around transparency obviously you want to do the real reduction stuff right i mean clearly you do that's a real thing for sure 
but then at the consumer end there's how do i believe this brand mm. you know they're just saying they they've done this but how do i know they've really done that and some of the ways to do that is around is around scientific measurement so that's really what i was going with that sort of question uh, so i mean yeah from that point of view yes i mean using science based targets you know finding you know it's not just also about what you're doing it's like actually who's actually saying that you're doing this properly and so right. on is really really important as well so yeah we do that i love that and you guys use um south pole i think don't you we do for all your projects yeah how do you pick the projects to work with uh we actually let our customers vote um so okay. we we, we pre-vet them because there are also some you know some projects around that in the past we we haven't been confident around um and i think that's one of the challenges i don't know if many of your viewers probably saw the jenny oliver uh, piece um, around, you know, really exposing some things. Mm. Um, so we we pre-vet what we think, uh, you know, actually do stack up. Um, and then, act, yeah, one of the big things, because again, it's not an option. It's not like you get to choose, uh, will, will I carbon offset this flight or whatever? It's just yeah. 100% of the network. Um, so yeah, once a year, we we let our customers vote on what they'd like to see. Yeah. Okay. And you pre-vet them. So what, can you give us some thoughts on what you think is more of a bona fide project than, than less? So, <laughs> yeah, we, we like, we really like ones that are, you know, trying to be true abatement, true, or true sequestration, right? you know, where possible, um, you know, so you actually can, can get a good confidence that they are removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere Yeah, uh, and um, locking it up for the long term. So, you yeah. know, we have a, our head of sustainability is, is, you know, very, very much looking at those types of projects um uh there are there are some times when we'll also uh have confidence around you know this is a uh, i think cook stoves for example we've, we've we've supported cook stove projects in the past we like those because generally they're one way again you know we have a cook stove moving to an electric oven or electric uh cooker um but at the same time there's actually huge amounts of other benefits um that that social and and, and economic benefits that can actually flow through you know yeah. indoor air pollution like you know helping people get well um is you know one of the big benefits that you get not just so not only you you stopping burning stuff and moving to electric cook stoves you're actually the entire family is not getting sick yeah you know? so those you know again there's always a bit of a balance in these things yeah. but those are the projects we look for i love that fascinating um you know i think everyone has their own beliefs around it but it's so interesting to hear yours and so thanks thanks for sharing that so last question i want to ask you around is around Pudo, and uh, we've got a couple of minutes left, and so I know we're I know we're about to wrap up. But Pudo or pick up drop off points, which is you know for anyone that doesn't understand that acronym, is something that's not really been super common here in Australia until just recently. I think it's starting to pick up traction, but it is massive in in Europe, and I think it's growing in popularity in the US as well. Do Pudo points and 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 the concept of, of Pudo does that does that represent any challenges for Send or do you, do you think that it's it's a, a natural evolution? Do you think you'll be able to service? Uh, people that want to use Pudo points as part of your logistics. What are, what are your thoughts around it? Yeah, so we um uh you know we have about fifteen hundred drop off points uh, in, as part of the Sindel network, and I, I think there's two things. One, Pudo app, you know we're big believers in Pudo because it absolutely does improve the density, which therefore improves the efficiency right. and reduces the amount of carbon per parcel. So you know that's all great. Yeah, the 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 balance there is trying to make sure that it is you know also improves utility and convenience. Because mm. if you can line all of that up, uh, you know, fantastic. And so, you know, a lot of our Pudo points are in locations. In fact, again, this is trying to improve efficiency, but in locations where you will otherwise be going, whether they're service stations or, uh, you know, ideally, you know, part of large, you know, shopping villages or whatever it might be. So, yeah, so yeah, I think I think Pudo Pudo is absolutely, you know, uh, from a convenience perspective, a lot of folk prefer it. 
I don't think we're going to get past home delivery anytime soon, though. Particularly, you know, one of the big challenges is that we still have a lot of folk driving around. Uh, you know, if, um, what we you find that the the amount of um, delivery pudo is often improved when it can be built around public transport. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's there's sort of a link there. Yeah. Because one of the things is you're you're walking past this particular train station, you can pick up your parcels on the way, and fantastic. That's you know, it's great for everybody. Right. So we will, you know, we're, we're improving, but that's that's really where a lot of the Pudo world is going. So fundamentally, do you think that the, you know, the the limited public transport infrastructure we have in Australia is a cause for why it hasn't taken off as much compared to, say, London, for example? Correct. That's you know, if you think about it, Pudo works when you're you're, you're getting all a lot of folk going to the same place. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. So it becomes part of your behaviour. You know, so if you're taking the tube or whatever it might be, then it, it really, really makes sense at that yeah, point, right? Yeah. Everyone's saving money and so on. Um, unfortunately, while we have folk, you know, if you're if you're not necessarily doing that or whatever, it becomes becomes outside your normal uh, your normal day. Yeah. Um, but but again, um, that doesn't say that price and you know uh, you know price can't trump some of that, but there is definitely a piece around convenience. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, you know, I think that's. Really, exactly right, especially in in Australia. I'm fascinated, but to see how this how this goes over the next couple of years, because clearly it's um, a more inverted commas sustainable option for delivery than right to home, anyway. And it'd be interesting to see how consumers, particularly again here in Australia, adopt that um, over everything else, especially if they don't have if they can pay for less for it as well, uh, which I think yeah. is, a, is a key thing. So, James, thank you so much. I think we need to wrap up. But what's next for Sendal? And where do people go if they if they think, yep, my brand's ready. I want to use these guys. Where do they go? Oh, I think that the next big, really exciting for us here in Australia is, um, yeah, really our Ship and Save program that we're launching. And, you know, again, anyone can sign up for that. We, we basically have a small business uh, ethos. Again, it doesn't matter how big or small you are. Um, what we're trying to do is, yeah, uh, give you the benefits of, of you know what happens when all the small businesses come together and and take a stand and say yeah we're gonna you know we're gonna level the playing field so um, but around that we're also uh, you know continuing we we launched earlier this year a two hundred fifty gram product for example yeah I saw that um, that's awesome you know Australia's cheapest parcel uh, which was really really cool because again part of the goal is how does shipping help you save more. Mm. Right. And you know if we can help you save more by improving your checkout conversion uh and because you can suddenly offer free shipping amazing right uh if we can help you sell more because again it doesn't you know you're getting more sales per uh you know you're improving your basket size again because of cheaper shipping at different thresholds fantastic we can help you get more loyalty because you're a sustainable brand uh, if we can help you uh, source packaging um that is you know compostable where you know that is really what we're what the entire business is built around how do right. we help small businesses sell more Love it. So where do they go? Where do they go to sign up, James? How what's the oh, process? Uh, Sendle, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it's it's as simple as that. Just sign up and uh yeah, again, no contracts, no minimums. Just start shipping. I love it. Thank you so much for spending your time generously with us today. It's been fascinating talking to you about the what you know, some of these big challenges that sustainable brands really are facing when it comes to logistics here in Australia. You know, we've talked about transparency, we've talked about uh, the circular economy. We've been all over the shop. We've even talked about hydrogen vehicles. Once again, I still don't know how I managed to get one in. But anyway, it's been so exciting chatting with you, James. Thank you so much. Thanks, Giles. It's been great to be here. Okay, back to Giles again for my top takeouts. Firstly, 
hats off to Sendle. Their focus on bringing enterprise scale logistics to small business has enabled them to tackle national logistics monopolies head on, not just here in Australia, but with USPS and Canada Post too. Until my conversation with James today, I don't think I realised just how extensive their operation has become. The fact that they now have sent parcels from every three-digit postcode in the US to every other three-digit postcode in the US is a testament to the robustness of their network, and that's again shown in their impact. 47 billion kilometres of carbon-neutral parcel delivery so far. And of course, it is the carbon-neutral part that they're perhaps best known for, and rightly so. To date, that's been achieved through offsets, but the team is actively working towards net zero, largely through leveraging their growing influence with their supply partners. In fact, shortly after we recorded this episode, Sendle actually announced that they were rolling out Australia's first fleet of solar-fuelled EV delivery vehicles in partnership with Bonds Couriers. So once again, they're stepping up and leading the way for other logistics operators to follow. Finally, if you haven't used Sendle before, or if you're currently using Australia Post, perhaps because of their volume-based price tiering, it is worth noting that from July 2023, Australia Post prices have gone up, while Sendle have implemented a completely new money-saving pricing structure. Plus, as James said, their new 250 gram parcel is effectively the cheapest parcel service in Australia right now. Being cheaper and better for the planet definitely makes it a compelling story for your sustainable brand. So I hope you enjoyed this behind the scenes view of Sendel. I'd like to say thanks again to James for joining me and sharing those insights with us today. I'll be back again with you next week for more stories from the world of sustainable e-commerce. So until then, keep building your brand for a healthier planet.